0: creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science. Neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method. And in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Well, good morning, uh, afternoon, or evening from St. Louis, Missouri. Whenever you're listening to this, um, I'm Marv Schaefer. I'm president of the Missouri Association for Creation. I'm here with uh, Steve Grimes, who is one of our speakers for our group, and, and uh, Steve does a lot of uh, of our talks on uh, DNA and and genetics and things like that. We thought he'd be the perfect guy to interview today's guest. Uh, A little background on Steve. He has a B.S. degree from Wash U in St. Louis in uh, systems and data processing. Uh, He was an adjunct faculty member at Washington U School of Engineering and Applied Science for 25 years, uh, teaching computer systems architecture in the undergraduate Bachelor of Science program he currently works as a database architect and developer, capping an information technology career that spans multiple computer environments and languages. Steve, uh, welcome to
1: you. I know you're looking forward to this interview. Uh, yes, thank you, Marv. Uh, so, thanks. tell us who our guest is today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Rob Carter. Uh, and this will be a treat. Dr. Carter obtained a BS in applied biology from the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1992. He then spent four years teaching high school biology, chemistry, physics, and electronics before going to the University of Miami to obtain his PhD in marine biology. He successfully completed this program in 2003 with a dissertation on cnidarian fluorescent proteins. Cnidarians are an interesting uh, group of animals. It includes the... uh, Corals and the jellyfish and such. Oh, okay. While in Miami, he studied the genetics of pigmentation and corals and other invertebrates, designed and built an aquaculture facility for Caribbean corals, performed well over 500 scuba dives, many of them at night, and licensed a spin off product of his research, a patented fluorescent protein, uh, to a biotech company. So he's a PhD geneticist, and we're going to ask him. Uh, A few questions about uh, Adam and Eve and and the genetics, uh, what genetics light can be shed on the biblical narrative. It sounds like he's a rock star. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah, Rob
0: has been uh, through St. Louis several times. In fact, he's actually stayed at my house uh, 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 when he came in for our conference that we had uh, two years ago at Concordia Seminary. Uh, He's actually going to be a guest for the next two episodes and Steve is going to be with us for three because I uh, Steve has done uh, some work looking into the James Webb Space Telescope. And so I'm going to actually be interviewing Steve. That'll be actually three podcasts
1: from now. So we've got Rob for the next two, Mm -hmm. Steve for the next three. Absolutely. So the first episode, we're going to focus on Adam and Eve, or try to. There's so many things I want to cover with Rob, but I'll try to uh, uh, focus on Adam and Eve. He's recently done a a, uh, presentation, Seven Reasons to Believe in the Biblical Adam. And uh, we may get to that. I hope to get to that, but we're going to work around that topic uh, for the next uh, few minutes here. Awesome. Let's get going. Welcome Rob Carter. We're happy to have you with us. Rob's a PhD geneticist as we mentioned and uh, Rob how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you today? Great. We're hoping to talk to you today on our podcast about uh, Adam and Eve. Are they real and uh, why do you think so and why do others not think so? Cool. This is one of my favorite topics. I'm gonna enjoy this. Good because apparently even people that are coming around to believing and maybe there was a real Adam they still want to have other people outside of the garden, uh, Joshua Das comes to mind, and uh, there's others that mix this up, and apparently there's been some change on the part of, I guess, Reasons to Believe, or others that have moved from, oh, it couldn't have been an Adam, to, okay, we'll accept there was an Adam, but they always want to mix it in with these other things. Uh, what are you finding out about Adam and Eve?
2: Well, tons of genetic things, but there's a biblical question that already pops up as soon as you started talking, and that is, the people outside the garden, where's this idea come from? This is something people have been wrestling with for centuries, specifically after the Europeans started discovering non-European people spread out around the world and they look very different, and they're like, yeah, how do you get all these different people if you start with Adam and Eve? Oh, maybe those aren't descendants of Adam and Eve. Maybe God created different people in different places. Of course, even saying that discounts the flood, where the Bible says all people in the world came from Noah's family. But people who were just taking a you know the 10,000-foot view, not really digging into details, some of them concluded that there must have been an Adam and Eve and then other people. And those other people, they would reference, um, you know, who, who did Cain marry? who is he afraid that was going to kill him? What are these other people that the Bible is talking about? Well, I wrote an article on creation.com called How Old Was Cain when he killed Abel? And that's a very interesting question because the only time statement in scripture after creation is Adam is 130 years old when Seth is born. And he's the first child born after Cain kills Abel. So Cain and Abel, there's a 130 year window for this murder to take place. They could have been great, great, great grandparents by this point in time. And there were other people alive today. There are other descendants of Adam and Eve, not people outside the garden or a separate creation. Or it's not like, you know, humans evolved and then God woke up in Adam and woke up in Eve and gave them a spirit. And there's other like non-spiritual but human-like beings out there. That That's not a biblical answer to the questions. Yeah. Aren't
1: you seeing in the genetic data the uh, the potential for all of uh, humanity to have descended from a common set of parents?
2: Yeah, we can take the genetics of humans and easily put them into Adam and Eve with room to spare.
1: You know, and I I think... In our next talk, we may even uh, get into some of the more of the population genetics and some of those kinds of things. But you had mentioned in one of your talks that I heard where the genealogical difference between mankind across the planet, there's not a single, for instance, race gene that says, oh, this makes you a member of this race, where this genetic sequence makes you a member of a different race. Nothing is that easily shown from the genetic data. Is that true?
2: Did Did I understand you right? what you said was pretty accurate we can expand that though and add some more details Uh, and it's been a, a giant shock to modern geneticists looking at people from different places in the world they expected to find an african gene or european gene or chinese gene or things that all europeans share there's nothing that all europeans share there's genes that are highly frequent in europe but those genes are also found in africa those genes are also found in china So it's not just like one culture shares them, they're shared everywhere. And then there's some rare things that appear only in some people. So blue eyes or sickle cell anemia or something like that. There are traits that are, that appear in populations, but they're not found across the entire population. So there's no gene. You can say that gene is found in all Europeans. Those genes don't exist because the gene is found in all Europeans is also found in Africa, Asia, Native Americans, Australian aboriginals. Those are genes that are common across the world. So what I'm saying is that there are no race-specific markers. There's nothing that positively identifies someone from any country. And especially if you consider that Europeans and Asians and Africans have been interacting a lot over the previous thousands of years. We find things in Africa that, you know, we thought were European specific, but they're not because everyone's family tree is mixed eventually.
1: Population genetics seems hard. I've learned things from what you've been contributing, like even the mutation rates vary between populations of the same species or of the same kind of animal and uh, all these different variants. I guess that's why we need computer software to model this and you mentioned the, um, Mendel's Accountant tool. Is that helped you look at the, these uh, Y chromosome Adam questions or the
2: mitochondrial Eve questions in the genome? I haven't specifically used that program, which by the way was reviewed by me on creation.com. 10 year anniversary of that computer program, which is as far as I know, the most sophisticated evolutionary modeling program ever written and it was written by creationists. Go to creation.com, type in Mendel Review. It'll come right up. That has been used to do a lot of population modeling and modeling of pieces of DNA that don't recombine over time, like a Y chromosome or mitochondria or a a viral genome. But I haven't used it for Y chromosomes. Okay. But it certainly could be used for that. No, actually, it's not true. It's not true. I have explored, starting with a single couple, an Adam and Eve, And letting that couple have children, the population grow and grow and grow, and adding mutation rate to that. And I'm trying to, at the end of so much time, look at the mutations and then build a family tree, like the evolutionary family tree of the Y chromosomes. I never got to the point where I could create something that looked like what I see if I survey random Y chromosomes in the world. It's kind of a project I did and then dropped because I, I moved on to other things. One of the things that I love that
1: you've brought out is that, and I'll phrase this my way, but you can correct correct it or make it a little more clear. The observed mutation rates that we see today, when you apply those to these models, you get a relatively recent Y-chromosome added mitochondrial Eve. It's only if you accept the evolutionary long-age presuppositions in your calculation that you end up with results that have the long ages for the slower mutation rates and the farther distant back
2: in the past their Adam, and their Eve would be. And that has been known for over 20 years. I mean, Carl Wieland wrote an article called a shrinking date for Eve in a journal of creation a long, long time ago. And it's quite clear if you apply a measurable mutation rate to the data, it doesn't take long to account for all the mutations we see in human mitochondria. And that's on average 22 letters separate the different branches of people. Now, some African branches might have a hundred letter differences to everybody else, but even that's well within the biblical time frame. It looks like there's about one mutation every other generation in mitochondria. For Y chromosomes, probably one mutation per generation along the whole chromosome, but we don't tend to sequence the whole Y chromosome because really repetitive. So if you go to like ancestry.com or 23me.com, they're only looking at markers that are common. They're not sequencing the whole genome. So that doesn't give you mutation rate. But we know mutation rates are also variable between people, between populations, between species. And so if we take a modern mutation rate that we can see, we know the rate is fast. We know it doesn't take long to get the mitochondrial leave or Y chromosome atom, but we don't know how long it would take. Hey, Rob, it's Marv. How are you doing? Hey, Marv. Hey,
0: we probably have some listeners that uh, would want a definition of mitochondrial Eve. If you could kind of just give a brief description of what that is.
2: The concept of mitochondrial Eve is really easy to understand, and that is that there's a single human female that's the ancestor of all people alive today. We learned that because the mitochondrial genome, which is a little piece of DNA that's inside the little subcellular compartment called the mitochondrion, and that's the thing that converts sugar into energy. And it looks like we only get our mitochondria from our mothers. therefore, the piece of DNA is only inherited from your mother, not your father. And that piece of DNA, which is intact from one generation to the next, Every once in a while, the mutation happens. And that little spelling error in the genome of that little thing creates a new branch in the family tree. And when we look at all the branches in the family trees for the mitochondria, they go back to one woman very quickly. Now, the evolutionists will always say this. It's funny because I've never known anyone who made this mistake. But the evolutionists are like, oh, you can't talk about mitochondrial Eve because the creationists will confuse it with Eve. Everyone knows in the evolutionary community that there was never a time when there's only one woman alive. Instead, they teach that there was, you know, a few tens of thousands of people alive. And just through sheer luck, only one of those women is the female ancestor of everyone alive today. So it's not... An Eve as in a single woman, it's just an Eve as in a lucky lady in a population. In a small population, that's going to happen at random, if you have enough time. It's like if you had a whole bunch of people go to Mars, and let's say there's 10 men and 10 women, and they start having children, and just like in modern America, the children take on the the father's last name, well, there's a pretty good chance that some fathers aren't going to have any sons. And some fathers have a lot of sons. And so in the next generation, there might be lots of Carters and very few Grimeses. And a couple generations after that, there might not be any Grimeses at all. And over time, if you just follow that pattern and the population doesn't grow exponentially, just randomly, you're going to arrive at a single last name and a single Y chromosome. So looking at the female lines, the same thing happens. It's just not tracking last names. The mitochondria go back to one woman. Y chromosomes go back to one man. and small populations given enough time.
0: So they're depending on the scientific doctrine
2: of sheer luck. <laughs> no, it's a mathematical probability. Oh, okay. <laughs> but then when you throw in modern mutation rates onto that, you realize that their scenario does not work. 20 years ago, they said, oh, Eve would have lived like 2,000 years ago. Well, that's crazy, because I think Eve lived 4,000, 6,000 years ago. Our Y chromosome atom is Noah. That was about 4,500 years ago. Our mitochondrial Eve was Eve-Eve, and that would be about 6,000 years ago. But that means that the mutation rates are within the biblical model. We can actually slow the mutation rate down and still get our biblical Eve. They're on the wrong side of the equation for the evolutionists. That seems to happen a lot. Uh, Yes, it does. It does.
1: One of the things I also uh, learned from you is that the gene sequencing, as you just mentioned now, they're they're only doing sections in case of uh, Ancestry and Me or these different places. But there's errors in the actual sequencing of the genome. Why was the thousand genome project
2: so important? Okay, two questions. First one is errors, and it drives me nuts. I want to be able to read a piece of DNA that's been sequenced and say, this is the sequence, and I can't do it. Uh, sequencing machines, they make mistakes. They make lots of mistakes. And the way to fix that is you just sequence your DNA many, 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 many times over, and then you average. And yet even when you do that, even if you sequence it 20 times over, you're still going to have mistakes. So they try to do 80, 100 times over, and that's better, but it's still not perfect, and it drives me nuts. And there's also issues with, I mean, where do you get the DNA? Usually you get the DNA from blood cells or from spit. Well, those are adult human cells. They've gone through a lot of cellular replication. I'm 54 years old. My skin cells have divided many thousands of times. My blood cells have divided many thousands of times, and every cell division is a recipe for more mutation. So adult cells have more mutations than the person was born with. And then usually they take the cells and they culture them. So they might take some blood cells and put them in a laboratory and raise giant vats of this blood cell and do it again and again and again. Well, more mutations happen in cell culture. So just because you have a sequence doesn't mean that's the actual the sequence of the original. And it's so frustrating because I look at this data and I want to track back to Adam and Eve, but the error rate in the data is about the same as the mutation rate I expect. And so when you, you see a difference, you don't know if that's an error or a mutation. And so I throw up my hands and say, oh, I wish I had better data, and no, I don't. There was a second part to that question. I rambled past it. What was that second thing you said? Great answer. Uh, The second part was on the 1,000 Genome
1: Project. I've heard you refer to that a few times.
2: Well, after the first human genome was finished for $3 billion, we decided we are going to sequence 1,000 genomes. Now, the 100,000 Genomes Project by the UK government is nearly finished. The US government has launched the Million Genomes Project. But this is usually pretty low-quality data. least the thousand genomes project it wasn't high quality they weren't looking for specific letters it's really good for looking at big chunks like oh this person's missing a gene or this dna is inverted in that person or if you scan across the genome you can assume that one percent of your your letters are in error but 99 percent, if it's good so you can still say hey this person looks like they have european ancestry this person looks like they have Polynesian ancestry or something like that and it's pretty good for doing that but you can't estimate the mutation rate from that and so you cannot use that kind of data to figure out how long ago adam and eve lived it's very frustrating but we've got millions upon millions of people now have had their genomes looked at i mean my data is on 23med.com I actually had my whole genome sequenced by a company called Dante Labs. They ran a Black Friday special a couple years ago, so I, I couldn't resist. So I've got my entire genome in a file on my computer, you know, to some accuracy level. I've never done anything with it, but it's there.
1: I think there are probably some people that have concerns about the, the privacy issues of getting their genome sequenced. <laughs> I know this steps outside of the science and into,
2: so sort of. Did you see my YouTube video, Privacy is Dead? <laughs> I did not. Oh, my. If it doesn't have the word
1: gene in it, I usually don't check them out. Okay, it was on my YouTube channel.
2: (laughs) Privacy is gone. There is no privacy left, period, as far as genetics is concerned. You cannot have an adoption that's private. You cannot have rape that results in pregnancy that the rapist can expect to be hidden. You cannot have cases of infidelity or lots and lots and lots of things are sitting there and are being discovered constantly and all these skeletons and all these closets are coming out there's a an article that um i really enjoyed it was a a professor at a college i think his uh, the title was something like 23 me gave my parents a gift of divorce Ooh. so as a class project he he submitted his DNA and his parents' DNA to 23me.com. And as soon as it appeared, someone came out of the woodwork and said, hey, you're my half-brother. Oh, I've been looking for my family all these years. I was adopted. And it turns out his father had had an affair and never told his mom. Yeah, you know, Privacy's gone. But we're now working on DNA sequencing machines that can sequence on the fly. And so you could put one of these sequencers in a New York City subway, and it just sucks in the air and sequences all the germs that are floating in the subway and they just you know, broadcast it to some central database but that also means that you can identify all the people on the subway from the skin cells that are sloughing off and this is cheap and fast and it's coming down the pike right now. Hey, bringing it back to Adam and Eve and then I think Marv has a question.
1: This is very simplistic but you can tell me if it's uh, mistaken. If I just look at XX versus XY as the chromosome for male and female Uh, Vice versa, female and male. Uh, It must mean that everything came from one male. Because if everything started with a single female, this is sort of a weird chicken and egg thing. But if everything had started with a single female, why wouldn't it be there to be selected or to be passed down? So everything had to start with a single male, which is exactly what we have in the biblical record.
2: Creation Ministries ran ran a campaign 10 or more years ago called 15 Questions for Evolutionists. And one of those questions was the origin of sexual reproduction. And it is a notorious problem. There's no reason for males to exist. There's no reason for a species to harbor half of their population as non important because you can have a female only species and they could reproduce like crazy. In fact, all species should be clonal. The organism wants its genes, and so therefore it should just propagate itself. And yet this thing called sexual reproduction supposedly evolved, and it's this crazy, complicated system that makes no sense, except it exists, therefore it must have been created, like you said. But also, sexually reproducing organisms, that should be breaking constantly. There should be so many examples of a former sexually reproducing organism that's no longer sexually reproducing. They should fill the fossil record, they should fill the biosphere, and they don't. There are a couple of examples. There's a crayfish in Europe that is parthenogenic and only pops out female crayfish time and time again. There's a couple fish species. And then there's the HeLa cells that are human amoebas. These are produced by a cancer of a woman named Henrietta Lacks in the 1950s. It's a very aggressive cervical cancer that killed her and they made these cells out of them that behave like amoebas. They're self-reproducing and they're Basically, they've contaminated most every laboratory in the world now, but those used to be human, and now they're free living, and there's no sexual reproduction going on. I mean, that's what cancer is. Cancer is when one of your cells stops behaving properly with its neighbors, and it starts reproducing itself selfishly. That's cancer. And we know what happens in humans, we know some of them now can be free living. How come the world isn't filled with free living, non-sexual reproducing cells? Great question for the evolutionist.
1: Yeah. Well, it makes me want to check out those others. Marv, do we have anything before we wrap up? Well, I guess uh, just one final question. Rob, you've
0: got a video up. I believe it's The Seven Reasons to Believe in a Biblical
2: Adam. Yes, you can get that on creation.com. Go to the store links, click on digital or media or something, and it's, it's a free video that's right there.
0: Awesome. Just can you briefly— Summarize Imagine it because sure. yeah, <laughs> I think that's something that our listeners would be really interested in hearing.
2: All right, so there are multiple reasons for believing the biblical atom. Some of them are genetic, some of them are just uh, mathematical. The first one on my list is the explosive population growth of the human race. I mean, there, there might be eight billion people in the world, but we get to ask if humans have been around for so long, how come there are only eight billion people? human populations grow very quickly. And if you look at a very slow growth rate, like maybe you double the population every 150 years, which is crazy slow, that would get you to Noah and his family 4,500 years ago. Which is
0: exactly what the biblical timeline is.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so the population growth of humans points to a very recent origin of humans. My second point was there's a general lack of diversity on the Y chromosome, the human Y chromosome. There's not many mutations that separate all the men in the world, and just looking at the mutation rate we can see in families, that would bring us back to Adam just a few thousand years ago. It's trivial, honestly, that the mutation rate fits the biblical picture. The third point was the fact that there's a Y chromosome Adam and the mitochondrial leave. Those didn't have to be true for the evolutionary community. We could have shared Y chromosomes with chimpanzees since They claim we came from the same population, but we don't. We have a radically different Y chromosome and a radically different mitochondria, and there's only a single Y chromosome and a single mitochondrial founder for the human race. The Bible demands that. Evolution is agnostic towards that. They don't care if it's true or not. When they discovered it, they, oh, we must have come out of Africa, out of a small population. They kind of invented that after the fact. The fourth part is just... um, How much genetic diversity is in humans? There's not a lot. In fact, chimpanzees have like eight times more genetic diversity than all of the humans in the whole world. You could easily fit the genetic diversity we have into an Adam and an Eve. And especially if you consider that God could have created different genomes in every one of Adam and Eve's reproductive cells. That means that the amount of genetic diversity depends on how many children they have. But Eve could also have been a clone of Adam, and we could still explain all the genetic diversity. It's easy. My fifth point was the distribution of the genetic variants, the frequency. There's like, I don't know, 30 million letters that can vary between one person and another that are found on all continents. That's 30 million variants that God created in Adam, or in Adam these reproductive cells, either way. 30 million variants, and that's easy to explain, but then there are millions upon millions of really rare variants. More common ones would be, like I said earlier, blue eyes or sickle cell anemia. But then there's, take a gene. This one person has a G there, and no one else in the whole world has a G at that location. That's because that person has a mutation. There was a spelling error as that person was developing. So that's one out of eight billion. The frequency of that is like 0.000000 something percent. It's, It's very, very infrequent. Then there's things that are found in only 1% of the population or, you know, one out of a hundred thousand people. Those are really easy to explain as mutations that have occurred in the human race since creation. So the common variation easy to put into Adam and the rare variation easy to explain as mutations since creation. My sixth point I think was uh, the fact that mutation rates are not constant. And that explains weird things like um, when you look at the family tree of mitochondria or Y chromosomes, the branches are different lengths. That doesn't mean that one population is older than the other. It just means that mutation rates aren't consistent. You can look at people that are from the same population that obviously have the same common ancestor not too long ago. And one person can have twice as many mutations from that common ancestor as their cousin. So mutation rates are not consistent. They're quite variable depends upon the environment, probably depends on epigenetics, maybe radiation, maybe starvation, who knows? All these things can be thrown in there, and um, it would affect the way the tree looks. And I like the way the tree looks, and I think it's very biblical, especially when you consider that right after the flood, the Bible says people live for a very long time. Well, very old people, specifically very old men, because their reproductive cells have been dividing many times as they age, uh, they're going to produce children with a lot more mutations than a short-lived person who doesn't have a child when he's like 500 years old. So the branches of that tree that we see probably reflect the age of the patriarch when the child was born, not time necessarily, not thousands of years, but just, you know, dozens to hundreds of years. And the last point was that the Bible says that Adam was real and Jesus affirmed that Adam was real. That's the most important point. Absolutely, it's the most important point. Paul affirmed that Adam is real. The Bible is very, very clear that Adam is real. In fact, if Adam's not real, we got big problems because we can't explain where death comes from. We can't explain the kinsman-redeemer concept for Jesus. We can't explain why Jesus is hanging on a cross to pay for sins. But in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, the historical Adam, if you sin, you will die. That's why Jesus had to die to pay for sins, to substitute for the death that we deserve. You get all these gigantic theological problems that happen if Adam's actually a historical figure. Well, Rob, thank you.
1: That was enlightening. Yes, great summary. Thank you. We'll have to check that out.
0: So we're we're going to have Dr. Rob back with us for our next episode. Uh, we're going to discuss barominology. Rob, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Wow, Steve, there was so much there. Yes,
0: tell me, um, give us
1: uh, give us some it, highlights. You, know, you know, basically the the idea that um, once again, observe science matches the biblical history, and it's only the conjectured scientists of evolutionists, when they have to put in their presuppositions to get their results, that you start to see these longer dates and these things that don't fit biblical history. Uh, it's, it, that pattern repeats itself yet again, uh, because here we've seen there is uh, plenty of basic, observable, genetic evidence that takes us right back to Adam and Eve, right back to what God said he did in Genesis. Well, when you look at the time frame, you know, they, they
0: talk about billions of years that's not enough. Right. If Billions
1: they... is it, it just, it can't happen, can it? Right. When you really start putting the numbers to it, uh, I think uh, whether it's Haldane's Dilemma, which was a population geneticist in the 40s who who showed how long it actually took these advantageous uh, leaps in evolution, which never happened, but even if they did, the number, the years and years and generations upon generations of time that it would take to uh, fix these genetic advantages in in a creature that was actually advancing. Um, they don't have enough time they would need 10 times and then 100 times the amount of time just to come up with one biologically useful protein like Preston uh, out from from scratch because it doesn't exist in the in the precursor uh, species that kind of stuff is drives the time numbers out the window so um, yeah we, we get to see yet again there's plenty of reasons to trust God's word and uh, every Christian should be encouraged by that. So, uh, folks, please
0: join us uh, the next time when the interview with uh, Dr. Carter will be about
1: baromenology, which just real quick, Steve, baromenology is? You know, one of the most scientifically prescient statements in Genesis is after their kind, and it's all over Genesis. And what does that mean? Well, a kind is basically a baromen, and Rob Carter is going to tell us how that works.
0: Awesome. That does it for this episode of the Mac Podcast, and we hope you'll join us next month when we continue that conversation with Rob Carter, Dr. Rob Carter, on Uh Just really quick, if you have any questions or comments, feedback, uh, anything else for us here at the podcast, send them to podcast at MissouriCreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to su- subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. You can find all of our episodes and subscription options at our website, missouricreation.com slash podcast. Also, um, coming up at the end of uh, April is a creation conference here in town. Uh, we urge you to uh, go to the website for the conference creation. It's actually creationconf.com, and you can find out more information about that. Uh, uh, you can link to it from our website, or you can go directly there. Reminder that we do meet on the first or the uh, second Monday of every month. Uh, you can find information of that on our website. As well, you can find out more about all the other things that we have going on and get information about Missouri Association for Creation. I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.